Hey there, welcome to Sedaris. We do hope that you appreciate this sermon from Pastor Ryan on Psalm 40. We do apologize for the poor sound quality as our recording device failed us last Sunday. Uh, we do think this is a fantastic uh, word from the Lord, and so we encourage you to long suffer, even through the bad audio, to, to hear what God has for us from the counsel of His Word. Have a fantastic day, and enjoy this sermon. Tell us about 
Jesus. What does this tell us about Jesus? And, and, and why do we do that? Well, Jesus, arriving on the scene some 1,000 years after the Psalms were written, had the audacity to look at the Jewish people and said, oh yeah, uh, those Psalms, those are written about me. Those Psalms are all about me. That's in, in Luke chapter 24, if you want to go look at it yourself. He's like, those are all they're written about me. And so every time we come to the Psalms, we unpack what the author is communicating, and we unpack uh, what does it tell us about Jesus, so that we hope to figure out how we might live life gospel-infused, with gospel-infused eyes through the pit and through these patterns, okay? Alright, so that's the full we're going to go with. The cry, the good response, and then Jesus. Alright, so, um, the first, the cry from the pit. The cry from the, the pit. All of us experience the pit, and at that point, when we do experience the pit, we have some options. We have some options in the pit, okay? We have some very real options. David knows that we have options, and so he unpacks them in verse 4. He kind of addresses and mentions these options. He says it like this. Blessed is the man or woman who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, but those who go astray after the lie. Okay, so, so here our author, King David, says that we have an option of what to trust when we're thrust into the pit. We have an option of what to trust. To trust God or turn to the proud and chase after lies. Now, now this lies is a, a Hebrew wordplay of, short, of sorts. It, it, it's actually short for just false idols. False idols. In fact, many translations, if you brought your NIV, for example, today, they'll go for this translation of false idols. You see, one person experiences the pit and concludes that God doesn't really care that they're in it. And therefore, God isn't actually all that helpful. This would be the agnostic, the deist. Another experiences the pit and concludes that their suffering might be evidence that God must not be real. This might be the atheist. But what this doesn't make the pit they're experiencing any less real. And it doesn't just make their need for solutions to get out of it any less needed or any less sought for, honestly. They just try to find their own ladder out. They look to other things to deliver them from the pit. Okay? And so examples abound of this. All of them are pretty pit-dependent. You know, each, each example kind of is different based on the pit that you're in. So um, let's consider the pit of helplessness or desperation uh, stemming from the overwhelming feeling that one will never find a romantic partner or mate. Okay, that, that is a pit. That can be a pit for many, many people in this city experience that pit. Some of my non-Christian friends are experiencing this pit. Now, one can look to the, the God of beauty to attract, some, attract someone else and lean on its um, tools in order to help them. Things like nice clothes, go to the gym a lot, pump the iron, um, uh, lots of, they can dress themselves up to make themselves beautiful, okay? Now, one can look to the God of money, one can look to the God of money, in order to attract a, a, a mate. They can uh, do that by, like, buying nice things or buying nice experiences, like cars and vacations to convince someone else they have money. That's an attractive quality that we can have, right? 
One could look to the God of altered mind frames and lean on drugs and alcohol to get to get along better or be more fun and attractive on me. You see, usually people lean on or trust a combination of these gods. Uh, these could be different rungs in the ladder to get out of the pit. But this is what David says. He says they're lies. They can't be trusted. They can't be trusted to deliver from the pit. And this is why, because eventually the carbs are going to catch up to you. Eventually the clothes are going to come off. Eventually the, the debt of the excessive spending is going to catch up. Drugs and alcohol fade, and you're in the same place you were before. Maybe even worse, maybe you did make it up a couple months in the ladder before one broke, and then you fall, and you're injured. You're worse off. And truly, let's not be ignorant, let's not be self-righteous here. Even Christians lean on and trust these false gods from time to time that are incapable of delivering us from the pits, okay? But David describes another person here who trusts the Lord. This person he, he describes as blessed, which is just the Hebrew way of saying happy. And this trust in God that leads to happiness produces a trusting action within the pit, a cry out to God. But before that, this action is actually in verse 1. David says, I waited patiently. I waited patiently for the Lord. This is an, a really emphatic Hebrew phrase that's actually just translated, I waited to wait. I waited to wait. Sort of strange phrase. I waited to wait, and, and it doesn't actually carry with it the, the general notion of like a, an enduring perseverance through the muck, through through all the crap. It actually refers more to an expectant longing, even curiosity, and, and, and an excitement for how God might act. How God might act. Okay. This is a patient trust that God will deliver from the pit. You see, this is how the mature people of God, they've historically responded to the pattern of the pit this way. But when they encounter suffering, they don't despair as if they're unimportant to God. They don't presuppose that the existence of God would mean that they are too entitled to suffer. No, instead they respond with a patient trust how is God going to deliver me this time? That's the, that's the attitude that David has here in verse 1. And it doesn't mean they don't mourn their situation. It doesn't mean they don't struggle at all. It doesn't even mean that they don't even slip into times of despair where they, they cry out to God in an extra level of pain and lament and discomfort. That's not what this means. But undergirding all of it is a trust that God is the God who delivers, that God will Leading to a patient, even curious excitement about how he might do that. So, to recall again, Christy and my story regarding the birth of our first daughter. We're thrown into the pit. We don't really have any confirmation as to whether Lucy would be born of Down syndrome or not for 20 weeks long. 20 weeks. But as we cried into God, out to God, as we pressed in to prayer over the next few weeks and months, do you know how God delivered us? Our prayers to heal our daughter, our prayers to give us the resolve to, 
to, to handle whatever came our way. We found courage in the place of fear. Again, we found excitement for our child in the place of glory. You see, God made us happy again. There were dark days in the midst of those days. It's, it's clear that it wasn't like the switch was flipped in our lives. It was dark and bright and dark and bright and a little more bright. Eventually the bright went out. But do you see how prayer leads to life and life leads to prayer? There's this dynamic with the people of God that these go back and forth. This is how a relationship with God works, okay? Now, before we look at the cry itself, we have to see a presupposition. There's two of them, actually. What presuppositions it rests upon, okay? Um, the Psalms are poetry, so they're rarely laid out in logical or sequential order. Uh, the first presupposition is actually found in verse 11, if you skip there. David says this, he's praying this to God. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. David is completely confident of God's love for him. Completely confident. There is not a doubt in his mind that God loves him. For some reason, the creator of the universe thinks much of him and loves him. David is confident of that. That's the first presupposition here. Do you know that to be true about God? This first presupposition is about God. Do you know that to be true about God? That he loves you. It has nothing to do with you. This is about God. That he loves you. He longs to be in a relationship with you. He longs to, to lavish good things upon you. He's not going to restrain his mercy, it says, meaning that when you mess up, that love is not at stake. No matter what, if you aren't crying out to him from the pits in your life, it might be because you've forgotten that God loves you. It might be because you've forgotten that. Perhaps you never knew this is the fundamental truth that Satan always attacks. We see in the Garden of Eden with Eve, essentially that dialogue is, you can really capture his side of the dialogue by saying, are you sure that God loves you? Are you sure? This is the truth that the non-believing world attacks. If there's all this suffering around us, God must not love us that much. Unless you view God as a loving and merciful father, you will not grant him as a child. Okay, that's the first presupposition. The, the second presupposition is actually the one people in Seattle struggle with a little bit more. Okay? And Amanda, you referenced it when you were up here too. It's in verse 17. David says this, As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. As for me, I'm poor and needy. See, David is equally completely convinced of his poverty and of his need for God. He fully understands that he's dependent upon God to get out of the pit. That he's powerless outside of God's saving action. So this one's about us. David has a correct view of himself. Do you know this to be true about your self? Are you convinced of your poverty in spirit? Of your need for life from God? 
We can't trust ourselves to get out of pits. We can't do it. As created creatures, we are dependent upon the saving actions of our Creator. Lucy and Penny, I bring them a ream of paper, 500 pages, probably once a month, they go through. And I want construction paper, they just want white paper, 500 pages. I plop it down on the desk, and as little creators, they just create things all month long. They get to cut out. Kind of things. Uh, Lucy actually decorated for Halloween this last week. There's a spider web in her front. <laughs> Just getting ready, guys. Three months ahead of time. You know? <laughs> they'll tape these to the walls, they'll, they'll color things, they'll make books together. But those creative things are dependent upon their preserving actions to continue to exist. Because if they're not careful, I find those things, they go in the garbage. I love them, they're beautiful. But I get 500 of them every month. <laughs> the same way, us as creatures of our Heavenly Father are dependent upon Him for deliverance, preserving, just like any other creation. So, so crying out from the pit proceeds from a presupposition that we have humility, that we can say, we need help, God. We need help. Both are crucial to produce a cry to God from the pit, okay? A person who grasps God's love, but not their dependence upon Him, they won't cry out to God. They'll attempt to look elsewhere for deliverance. Eventually, they'll become completely disconnected. A person who does not grasp God's love, but is aware of their dependence upon Him, might fear God. We would all eventually become embittered. That's God. Crying to God, we must have a right view of His love for us, and a right view of our need for Him. Okay. So now we're ready to hear this cry. Verse 12 is where the cry starts. Verse 12. Her evils have encompassed me beyond number. This is David speaking. My iniquities, that's long, form, or sin. My, sin have, my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. There are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. As for me, this is down verse 17, I am for thee, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. The cry really speaks for itself, doesn't it? David's cry seems to seek deliverance from a few things here. Apparently he's trying to seek deliverance from the effects of his sin. Seems that he's trying to seek deliverance from his, his own sin, maybe sin in general. He's seeking deliverance from others who want to put him to shame, who want to either see him at the top, and want to topple him over. This is a theme that occurred throughout his life. And what I find most beautiful most authentic about this cry, though, who am I to say it's authentic? But the way that this resonates most with my cries is how simple it is. You know, it's not, it's not complex. It's not intricate. It's not detailed. It's pretty much just help, God, help. Over and over again. That's the cry. And so here, here's a test for you. How often are you crying, help, God, help? The more you correctly conceive of 
yourself, the more you will find yourself with this cry throughout your day. Because in reality, we encounter pits all the time. All the time. You're vulnerable creatures. You're vulnerable creatures. You're so vulnerable. We, we may go and be part of these huge companies that do amazing, powerful things in the world. I ordered a Wi-Fi router and got a $12 later last week. That's power right there. But at the end, when we come home, we're left to our own thoughts and our own inner worlds, we realize how vulnerable we are. We numb ourselves out to it all the time. We are vulnerable creatures. So after a baby cry out. That's the cry. It's produced from a heart that's in the pit with a correct understanding of God self. Now David, for the rest of the psalm here, presupposing the deliverance of God in his confident fashion, where it's already happened, deliverance has already happened, opts to use the remaining verses to speak to the good response to God's deliverances. Alright. So we can say that verse chapter 2, or chapter 40, verse 2 has already happened. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. That's happened now. So let's move into how does David think that people should respond once this has happened? He starts in verse 5 to discuss this part. He says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them that they are more than can be told. True, truly, David has in mind the great ways that God has enacted deliverance for the Israelites. He has in mind the fact that there's more than a million of them in, in, in oppressive slavery and genocide in Egypt. And God had delivered them by his power. He has in mind the countless times that their enemies outnumbered them. And God fought their battles and delivered them. Okay? And if he's saying there's so many, we can't even count on these there are so many times and ways that you have delivered us, God. And then he makes a pivot. And it's a hard pivot to understand unless we have a good understanding of the ancient Hebrew ritual of sacrifice. Okay? Unless we have our, our minds wrapped around that. It's difficult to understand it. Okay? Because after God delivered the Israelites and a million of them out of Egypt, he brought them to Sinai and he gave them the law. And the subtext of the law is this. Now that it has been established that I love you, now that it has been established that, that you need me, now that, that it is made clear and evident that I have delivered you, now live a life of obedience to me. And part of that is this sacrificial system. Now follow my laws. Now, if that grates you the wrong way, if it rubs you the wrong way, good. Good, because David tells us that's not the whole story. That's not the whole story. He says it like this, starting in verse 6. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. You've given me an open ear. Birds offering and sin offering, you have not required. Okay? So in verse 6, we actually have uh, the four references to the four big sacrifices of Israel. These four big sacrifices are listed in the first four chapters of Leviticus. That's the third chapter of the Bible that God gave at Sinai. Okay? 
He says that these sacrifices are not required by God. People have gasped in his day. Really? That they aren't, in fact, the appropriate response to God's deliverance. At the same time, David says that God has given him an open ear to hear what God does hope for in response to his deliverance. David is saying that he has some more wisdom and some more discernment for us on the subject, okay? Let's find out what it is. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Okay. What is he saying here? Well, Bible scholars agree that David seems to be referencing the part of the law or the scroll of the book that outlines how kings are supposed to function for the Israelite people with regards to their relationship with the law, to interpreting the law, interpreting the sacrifices. And it comes from Deuteronomy 17, actually, so I'm going to put it up on the screen for you guys. It goes like this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around you. You may indeed set a king over you, that's David, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as the king over you. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of his law, approved by the Levitical priests, meaning he can change it both. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So why is David pointing to this then? Well, probably because he's interpreting the law in these verses, and he's saying some really counterintuitive things to the Israelites regarding these sacrifices. And so he's saying he's grounding his authority in the law for him to do this, okay? He's saying, hey, listen, it's part of my job as king to make a copy of this. It's part of my job as king to understand it, to read it every day, all the days of my life. Let me help you understand what it's all about. He's showing his listeners that he's not dismissing the law of God at all, but he actually has a deeper love and understanding of the law than anybody who reads these chapters. What does this remind us of? Jesus showed up on the scene and did the same thing. As the one to fulfill the kingly line of David, he shows up and says, you guys think you know the law, but I love it more, I understand it more. Let me describe it to you. Let me explain to you what it actually means and what it looks like to follow it. That's in Sermon on the Mount. It's really his whole ministry, but in Sermon on the Mount, we see it down the, clear, the, the most clear. It's in Matthew chapter 5, the first book of the New Testament. Okay? But anyways... In verse 9, David tells us what God really hopes that his deliverance of his people might inspire them to. Okay? Here it is. Verse 9. David says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your 
spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. You see it? David says it five different times, five different ways. This is the part of the psalm he wants his listeners, his readers to walk away with. He's saying that God hopes his people might publicly proclaim all that he's done for them to deliver them. That's the whole point of it, he says. That's the whole point of it. That's why sacrifices were a part of the law. They were public proclamations of God's delivering acts. It's like Glenn going to John and saying, hey, John, what happened to Edna, your goat? John being like, oh, I was delivered by the Lord from this. Let me tell you all about it because Edna's gone now. That's what it was all about. It was meant to be a public thing that people could attach their stories of deliverance to. And David is reminding the people that God is more concerned with them telling the goodness of their deliverance and for their quiet, wooded obedience. When God delivers his people, he doesn't just hope that they pledge their allegiance to him and live quiet and happy lives. He hopes that they might proclaim it from their rooftops. Because here's the tragedy of the story of God delivering Christy and I from the pit with regards to the story of telling this Almost all of you that was the first time you did it. First time. What a tragedy. And so today, I'm not using that story necessarily to encourage you to patiently wait in the pit for the Lord's deliverance like we did, although, sure, do that, definitely do that. I'm sharing this story with you as an example of a really poor response to God's deliverance. Because we proclaim that deliverance to all these Almost no one. We thought, eh, it's too much to explain. Eh, we didn't really know what we were doing. Eh, it makes us look weak. Eh, it's too much to explain. David would assess that deliverance and say, God was great. Ryan and Christy, not so much. Not so much. And as I prepared the sermon this week, I've had to just repent. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When God generously delivers us, we generously share that story with others. That's the reality of it. And then we find people like Amanda who are willing to generously share their story as much as they can, and I think we're generous with them. More than I think that those people deserve so much of our generosity that are just committed to telling God's story delivers to his son and them 24-7, we can't be generous enough. I mean, you reach out with them just sometime this week. Sorry to ask you here, man. Back there. We're like, yeah, get her up there to tell her story. Please be generous with her. She's going to be sharing the gospel. And yeah, I was there six weeks ago. There is so much brokenness in that city. So much brokenness in that city. It just drips everywhere. It looks so clean, but in the underbelly, it's so dirty. Be generously share. Gives God glory. I would tell you there's so many stories of deliverance, like my own, like the man's in your congregation. So many stories. And I think we've restrained our lips with regard to them. Because I think you guys aren't that much different from me. And I think it just naturally happens when Christians exist as a minority in the city. We're 
tempted to be stingy with our stories of God's deliverance, but David wants us to be generous. How can we grow in this? Well, look at where David says this storytelling happens. Verse 9, in the great congregation. Verse 11, from the great congregation. We share it with each other. We share these stories of deliverance with one another. That's not that threatening. That's not that intimidating, is it? Not at all. We tell each other about how God has saved us in the pits of our life. Whether it be the first time he saved us through his gospel, or whether it be those other ways, like the example of the story I'm sharing today, that God delivered us from the pit. You know what happens? Wow, God is great. If he did that for her, he can do that for me. He can do that for you. It becomes one of the primary ways that the body is edified, encouraged, built up, and given strength and confidence in God's love for us and in our need for him. That's what it's all about. And then it also actually turns into a great practicing ground for how we might tell our stories outside of our community as well. You know, you hear a story, you have a friend who went through the same thing, oh, my friend went through that, this is how God delivered them from it. Sure, it's been done. But hey, you never know. They might think, wow, maybe God could do that for me. So, telling our stories that encourages us, trains us as missionaries. Well, I don't have the story of God delivering me from the pit. Well, if you're a Christian, of course you do. Because all of us have been delivered from the realm of darkness to the realm of life. When did that happen? Well, the first time that you cried out, verse 12, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My, my sins have overtaken me. I can't see. They're more than the hairs of my head and my heart because of them. Do you remember praying that for the first time? You were feeling that for the first time? You've been delivered from that. We all have stories of God delivering us from some of the beginning of our, our walk with Him, and then hopefully delivering us from more and more sin as we continue to walk with Him. We have so many stories of what God has delivered us. From our sin. And this is going to take a good, robust theology that we look at each other and we say, You're no more sinful than I, you're no more sinful than me, so that we might hear these great stories of deliverance. Sometimes our shame is what keeps that, those stories at bay. But God gets so much glory, and so many people worship Him when we share our stories of deliverance. Uh, Joshua's up here and he preached last month. The details of his story, of God, all that God had delivered him from, and God got so much. Okay. After hiding these stories for a long time, we tend to forget these stories. Sometimes it takes some time to reflect. So reflect this week. What are the times that you cried out help to God and He responded by delivering you? Take time to reflect and uncover the amazing stories of deliverance that God has for you that might be hidden in your heart. That's the first step of repentance here. Identifying the stories. The second step of repentance, telling them to somebody else. And if you struggle to think of any, it might be because you've forgotten that God loves you, that He needed you. You've stopped crying out, you've stopped experiencing His deliverance. Okay. But all of us have many stories. We should, we should have many stories that model the first three verses of this song. Waiting, patiently crying, getting delivered. New song in my mouth. Let's work on verse three. New song in my mouth.
song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Okay, part three then. This brings us to Jesus. What does this song tell us about Jesus? Let's run it through the, the whole thing from start to finish, okay? First we look at Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus' ministry was one that was marked by delivering people from pits. That's what he did. He went from town to town, delivering people from sickness, whether it be lame, leprous, blind, death. And then he delivered people from their sin, whether it be covetousness, a great example of that, Zacchaeus, adultery, their pits of spiritual torment and demonization. He cast demons out. Jesus as God in the flesh, he delivered people. God shows up on the scene. He's delivering God. He shows up on the scene, and he acts exactly how we would expect him to. Just continues to deliver people from town to town to town as much as he can. I don't know what your pits are, but I know that Jesus can deliver them. Deliver you from them. I know that he wants to. And as Jesus delivered more and more people in his ministry on earth, here's what's crazy. Towards the end of his ministry, he comes into Jerusalem. The whole city is packed with crowds that are there for the biggest festival of the year. They're all worshiping. Most of these people wouldn't have seen these acts of deliverance. They just were worshiping. When people hear the stories of deliverance, they praise God. And we look at Jesus' death, okay? Like we talked about, Psalm 40 points to the insufficiency of sacrifices and offerings to rescue people from sin, okay? Namely, I mean, the, 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 to rescue from God's wrath. Sacrifices and offerings are incapable of doing that. But this means something very, very important. It's Jesus' perfect obedience, and it's his perfect sacrifice that gets us into the kingdom of God. It's not our own. It's not our own. And how do we know this is true? Because Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament cites Psalm 46, 7, 8. Verses 6, 7, 8 to make that very argument. Our altruism, our righteous acts, they don't erase our rebellion. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. And it means that our primary job isn't to obey Jesus, although we definitely will. Our primary job is to tell his love, our neediness, and his deliverance of the world. And then, then we look at his resurrection. Here we see that after delivering sinners from a spiritual pit on the cross, Jesus himself was physically delivered up from death. God set his feet upon a rock. He made his steps secure again. People can debate and will debate with you all they want about the reality that we're in a spiritual pit. Okay, fine. That's fine. But you know what pit isn't debatable? The pit of death. It's a six-foot pit that is at the end of all of our lives. And no one knows when it's coming. Even today. This is what all humanity fears. This is the pit. And Jesus' resurrection, his resurrection, his deliverance by God the Father gives us the hope that we too will be delivered from the pit of death and resurrected if we die. But here's the problem. All this, here's the problem. Jesus, he's not here. He experienced the deliverance of God from death. He, he can't tell anybody about it because he's at the right hand of the Father. So what has he done? Well, he told his followers that it's right before he left. This is Acts chapter 1. It says, but you, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So the body of Christ are to be the witnesses. Witnesses just recount what they've told, what they've seen, what they've experienced. You are to recount the deliverance that you've seen. For 2,000 years, that's what Jesus' followers had me do. We preached a whole uh, sermon series through the book of Acts. We call it Witness. That's just what they did. They were just telling everybody what they saw. That's all they're doing. They're talking about the deliverance of God. They're talking about Jesus. When he was alive, he delivered people. In his death, he delivered them from the spiritual pit of sin. In his resurrection, God delivered him from death. And by implication, all of us who might believe in him. Okay? So that, that's, that's, that's what we do. Now remember, Psalm 40 is poetry. And, and poets in the room, any poets? Poets. Poets. Great. Poets will know, and maybe thought this great, that I've committed a barbaric act this morning. I've cut this beautiful poetic work into pieces and rearranged it so that our, our contemporary logical minds might wrap our heads around it. It's, it, it's, it's a tragedy, okay? So I, I want to close reading all of it so you can hear the full beauty of it all at once, okay? So let's let the word of God speak to us. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man or woman who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them that they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart, but I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My enemies have overtaken me and cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor delight in my heart. Let all those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. We pray for you. Father, we come before you and we praise you for your deliverance. 
dear God who for some reason thinks much of us, who loves us, and seeks to help your, your poor, lowly, created creatures that they might experience life and life to the full. So right now, Lord, as, as we consider how we might begin to proclaim of your deliverances in this world and in this congregation, God, I pray you would give us courage. I pray you would bring to mind all those things you may have hidden in our hearts, God, that we might encourage one another and send one another out equipped with stories of deliverance. Too many to count, indeed. God, I pray for my friends here today who may not have experienced your deliverance yet, Lord. I pray that you would continue. Uh, we thank you that you have brought them here to consider you, God. We ask that, that this would just be the next step on their road of consideration. Would you uh, show them their spiritual need for you? Show them that your deliverance is ready for them. They would just ask. Pray all this in the name of Jesus, by your spirit, for those.